Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining me today for our first year in review program uh, over the course of this week is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, uh, who is going to give us uh, his thoughts uh, on 2023 and what the most interesting stories of the year have been, and also uh, a look at the week ahead as everybody heads into the holiday season. Byron, welcome back to the program, uh, and thanks very much for the partnership over 2023. Absolutely, Vago. Thank you, too. It's been a pleasure, and I always learn something. Uh, same here, uh, every every single uh, week. Uh, before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor, HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense, HII delivering the advantage. Uh, and I should say, Byron, I've been I've been learning from you for the last thirty years, so uh, it's uh, it's certainly same been too, uh, same too. Uh, in, indeed. Um, so I, I want to get to uh, what some of the big stories uh, of uh, the year have been and what they sort of tell us about what we should be expecting uh, in uh, 2024. But wanted to first uh, get uh, your sense on where we are uh, with uh, the Senate and a deal that clears that $110 billion for Ukraine, uh, Israel, as well as Taiwan. All eyes are on that. Um, you know, give us give us your sense on how this sort of plays out, right? Because the Senate's going to stay in, in town to help negotiate that. We heard uh, Michael Herson last week on Friday talk to us about that, but the House isn't back until January 9. T- tell us how it is you think this could all work out. Look, the reports over the weekend, you know, didn't suggest a whole lot of progress here. I mean, I suppose the good news is both sides are talking, but, you know, this has always been a very sticky issue. And so I think, you know, it's probably, you know, 60, 70% odds that, you know, by Wednesday or Thursday, there's no immigration deal, border uh, security deal. And that means there's no deal on the Ukraine supplemental, at least from a Senate um, standpoint. So, you know, this whole thing gets kicked into 2024. Um, I and, and I think, you know, I wrote about it last night, Vago. I think the other the other subtext of this is, you know, there have been some opinion polls. I cited one that Pew had done, I guess, at the end of November, the beginning of December. <clears throat> like a lot of things in this country, you know, there's a partisan divide on aid for Ukraine. And this particular Pew research poll found that I think 48% of uh, respondents who were, were Republican or who were lean Republican felt that the U.S. was doing too much to help Ukraine. So, you know, this is something as both the House and Senate head for a recess. The Republican members are probably going to continue to hear this. You know, it's going to be reinforced. Now, the other part of this whole debate on immigration and border control is really the progressive part of the Democratic Party. You know, they're going to hear, I think, loud and clear, like you can't cut a deal that just trashes um, kind of the current conventions around asylum, um, you know, the 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 E-Verify um, stipulation was in HR two, uh, which was the House bill that was passed on partisan lines last May. So, you know, it's it's just not looking good um, for for the Ukraine supplemental package. And I suppose there could be a Plan B, but what that Plan B is right now, I just don't know. 
you know, when I looked at a lot of the money <clears throat> that was in the budget, at least for procurement for the Department of Defense, you know, it's just money that, you know, is going to be authorized um, and it would expire in at the end of 2025. So <clears throat> there may still be a way to repackage this, but it might even be more difficult in a presidential election year. So I think increasingly you really have to start thinking about these scenarios about what does it mean for Ukraine in 2024? What does it mean for perceptions of U.S. Um, engagement in the world? And we can talk about that in a second. But I think, you know, kind of going into the week, if the Senate had was able to do something um, and, and find compromise and agreement on, on this, and it looked like you were going to get a supplemental package, that would be a pretty strong sentiment positive for the defense sector going into the year end. You'd still have to get through the House in 2024, but at least, uh, you know, a deal in the Senate suggests maybe there is some headroom for a deal in the House. Is the delay, whether here and in Europe, even if it's still January, a win for Putin, or is that the wrong way to look at it from your standpoint? That if the aid is eventually getting there, that's the important thing. Well, the, the important thing, I think, is going to be to see what happens. Literally, you know, what kind of campaign can Russia muster in January, February, well, at the virtual end of December, but um, January, February, March, you know, particularly if Ukraine starts running out of air defense interceptors, I don't know how much you're really going to be able to accomplish on the ground. Um, but, you know, wars can end in exhaustion. And, you know, it, it's not necessarily one side um, entering and conquering the other side's capital, you know, a la Berlin in 1945, Tokyo in 1945, or Baghdad in 2003. It can just be that, you know, one side has had enough. And um, and so that's kind of where the armistice comes out. And that's a distinct possibility in 2024 if Ukraine kind of reaches that. What's our what's our strategy here? You know, if if we don't have the aid, you know, do we cut a deal and kind of hope we can hide behind defensive lines? It's just to be determined. But, you know, we continue to talk about this. I just think that has really severe ramifications for global security, how people view the U.S., how, you know, what's Europe's defense capacity. And I think, you know, it's a fair guess. We can talk about this, you know, in the, in the context of 2023. But I think there is this narrative that Putin's weak, that, you know, the Russian army is, you know, clay feet that, um, you know, Wagner mutiny signaled the end of, of Putin's reign. And it hasn't happened. I mean, if anything, right now, you know, their military is still able to um, to fight. Um, their industrial base is performing. And the idea that they're going to get weaker, I think, you know, you ought to, you ought to put a big uh, circle around that and wonder if they're not going to get stronger in 2024. And that's where it really becomes a problem um, for Europe, for the United States, and frankly, for the ramifications for global security in general. Um, I would uh, I would agree with you, with you on that because, you know, his attitude, and he said it during his press conference last week, uh, Putin did, uh, you know, he's everything about how he does things is patience. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he likes jujitsu. And he likes to jujitsu us. So they're like, oh, you know, New York Times had a great story about how Western companies have been extorted, uh, you know, pressured to sell their operations at discount rates. Uh, 
you know, or, or even paying Russians uh, right. to take over their operations. So at the end of the day, okay, the, the name changes, uh, but folks can still get Starbucks. Folks can still get McDonald's. They're all under different names and different labels, but it's not like they're, you know, they've, they've stopped their operations there. So, um, you know, ultimately you got to look at an adaptive learning enemy that's actually transferred to a war footing is being helped by Iran and is also being helped by the North Koreans. So they're getting, they're not only making 2 million artillery shells a year now, they're also getting uh, a lot of stuff uh, from, from their uh, allies and partners. Uh, Let me um, just uh, briefly, right. I mean, you, uh, you uh, brought up uh, world war two and, you know, Bibi Netanyahu, right? Israel has been uh, subjected to criticism in how it's waged uh, its campaign uh, to hold Hamas accountable after Hamas's unspeakable deeds of October the 7th. Uh, and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu invoked, you know, well, the allies have dirty hands as well. Civilians died, you know, invoking the atomic bombings and the bombings of Dresden uh, and the like. Do you, do you think that's an appropriate analogy to be using in 2023? Um, I think the the real fundamental question is, you know, what did we do after the war was over? And, you know, there was an effort to reconstruct and uh, basically change the character of the societies that generated, uh, you know, the the Nazis and, uh, you know, Japanese imperial aggression. Um, And I think, you know, Netanyahu may invoke, sure, civilians obviously were killed during World War II, but... Um, what are you going to do after this? Um, it's it's not a big dif- well. It is a security issue. I mean, it's kind of like so what? What what would have happened if we had just left Germany and Japan as smoldering heaps and assumed that someone was going to take all those refugees um, who no longer had a place that was you know viable to live in? Uh, you know that's what people ought to be thinking of, and that's where I think the the real pickle is going to be for Israel in thinking about their security in 2024 and 2025. Because, boy, you know, if the U.S. can't pass a Ukraine supplemental, you know, does anybody think there's a remote chance that anybody's going to be talking about aid for Gaza to rebuild a place where people could actually live in that city? You know, obviously under a different government without Hamas there, but. Um, you know, I'll sell you a bridge if you think that's going to happen. Uh, right. Um, let me uh, tell you, you know, I mean, because what, what the criticism obviously leveled at, at the statement was we're in different places, right? In in World War II, you were sending thousands of bombers to try to take out a factory and you were taking out entire neighborhoods and parts of cities, whereas we're in a different place uh, today with uh, precision, even even in an urban area, even though you know, U.S. operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere did exact uh, a civilian toll, albeit maybe not as severe in as short a period of time. Um, what are, from, from your standpoint, shifting gears? Obviously, Russia, room, uh, Russia-Ukraine loomed large as a story. And since October, uh, the Middle East is sort of back on everybody's uh, radar screen, even with occasional misbehavior uh, by uh, Iranians. Obviously, a focus on China. For you, what were what were the most important business uh, and strategic stories, um, even if they necessarily weren't the biggest ones, right? What are the things that jumped out at you and said, okay, that's interesting, and and this is why that's interesting and why that actually could be a bigger bigger deal than people think? Um, look, Vago, I think, you know, where do we even begin with this? Um, from a domestic standpoint, you know, just the chaos you've seen in the U.S. House of Representatives, you know, the the ousting of Speaker McCarthy, 
the return of, um, you know, prior to that, the return of debt and deficit politics, you know, was a wedge issue, um, passage of the Fiscal Responsibility Act. I mean, so you didn't cut out the FY24 number, but you cut the FY25 number and you've set up this, um, you know, sort of Damocles over uh, the defense budget. Um, I think that was a very significant change. And, you know, and it and then it ripples right through the whole discussion about aid for Ukraine, you know, um, you know, this notion that the U.S. is bankrupt and that we can't afford to do these things. I mean, it's it's risible if you really look at, you know, how this country spends money, how we tax, um, you know, some of the things that, you know, for a marginal amount in the in the context of, you know, what do we spend six or seven trillion dollars a year? Um, it's really <clears throat> this is pocket change. Uh, for things that that really have you know pretty profound, potentially profound implications on on global security. So that's that's one thought that I think is a is a significant change, um, and I think it really does kind of the setup. You know, you always ask your things. You're looking back at what happened in 2023, but what's what's the setup for 2024? And I think one of the key issues we're going to see play out in 2024 is, you know, was this a pivot in the the role that the U.S. will play in the world, because um, if we're starting to really, you know, say we can't afford to do all this stuff, um, we're just not going to be around a lot of these things, uh, or we're going to be doing very, you know, superficial actions um, that, you know, maybe other countries can pick up the slack, but but I doubt it. I, I doubt that, uh, you know, anybody can pivot as quickly and and kind of backfill that capacity and that will that the U.S. has. We saw that, right? The EU said, look, let's, uh, you know, there's a delay across on the other side of the, the Atlantic. Let's move uh, and pass 50 billion uh, euros uh, of our own that Ukraine uh, needs. And all it takes is a Viktor Orban to throw the, you know, wrench in the works. And and then that ends up uh, ends up stalling. I mean, assuming even European governments have that kind of money at that pace that they can give. And again, they have their own industrial base challenges. Yeah. Um, what, and their own fiscal challenges too. But but I think, well, okay, so one of the other things, you know, looking back, I think there was pretty significant movement, at least from a rhetorical standpoint, on and actually on a monetary standpoint too, but I think, you know, the Air Force embrace of um, the, the CCA, the Collaborative Combat Aircraft Program, you know, you and I were both at the... Um, February Air Force Association event where Secretary Kendall kind of rolled that out. <laughs> and I think that's pretty significant. You know, when you start talking about a thousand of anything <clears throat> in this budget, and then, you know, the tagline of that would be the replicator program, you know, that unfortunately there's still not a lot out on that. Um, maybe, maybe that announcement by Deputy Secretary of Defense Hicks was a little premature, but you know, at least at least there's movement here that the Department of Defense is actually thinking about and planning for. Um, you know, I won't say that they're autonomous systems. There's certainly going to be systems that take advantage of autonomy. Um, you know, but they are lower costs. You you are getting back to the scale issues. You are getting to to you know the value of quantity and not just exquisite high end systems. So you know, how this plays out. But I think there is real movement on this in 2024 and, and 2023. And, and that's something that people ought to note. Um, I uh, also would say it's uh, very impressive the speed with which we went from the introduction of an idea 
uh, all the way to uh, the Air Force, right, last week, picking the five companies that are going to move ahead with it. Yeah. And, you know, I'd add to that, you know, the DOD funding of the Jet Zero project for blended wing body, you know, Defense Production Act money to Expo. I mean, there's just some movement here that it's creating some lanes potentially for some of the startups, the new defense tech entrants. It's not to say that the large primes can't deliver on this capability either, but um, but it's a market shift. And I think I think it's a pretty significant one. And a quick word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors our daily coverage, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. You were saying, Byron. Um, well, look, you know, it's kind of, it's maybe 2.5 or I don't know, it's not a separate line. I mean, so it's kind of related to this other question, which is, um, you know, okay, you're funding these new programs, but if the if the current defense industrial base can't scale and meet meet demand, and you know, one of the other factors I think that you did see, some of it's d- delayed. Um, you know, we had an increase in inflation, so you start to see some problems crop up um, for some of the larger defense contractors. At least they were signaling that they have potential problems. Northrop Grumman on fixed price options on the B-21 bomber program. Lockheed Martin had some problems on a, on a classified missile program. Um, you know, you've had other, uh, you know, questions about how quickly can you ramp and scale uh, some of these legacy munitions and weapons programs that, you know, I don't know, it didn't make sense to do a clean sheet design and, and just start over rather than building something, you know, that more or less is built the same way it was built in the 1980s. So this... This question, and it's kind of related back to Replicator and maybe to CCA, but, you know, it, it bill a plant, you know, Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, that's a statement, was talking about this in 2022, but, you know, his whole mantra of it's about production, production, production. And I think, you know, as much as people talk about the United States being the arsenal of democracy, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of evidence that we're still behaving as if we're the artisans of democracy. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, exactly it, right? Because too few of all of the things that we produce are actually designed for producibility, uh, right? I mean, we still have, uh, whether uh, it's because they were antiquated designs, you know, and, and at the end of the day, making something a little more complicated to make increases the touch labor, allows you to charge more money. And there are a lot of dynamics for that. And it looks like we're going to move to, you know, as, as we've heard uh, Secretary, Undersecretary LaPlante uh, explain it and, and others, uh, you know, Dr. Shu has said it, Secretary Kendall has said it uh, about the need, and, and certainly uh, Dr. Hicks has said it, you know, we, we've got to start changing our fundamental approach to this stuff to be able to produce more stuff faster. Right. Uh, and I think the replicator idea is brilliant and exciting because it would be engage non-traditional suppliers and build stuff faster, uh, especially uh, large numbers of very expendable things, uh, as opposed to maybe maybe some higher end systems. What are some other business trend stories, Byron, uh, over the course of this last year? I think a couple other things are worth pointing out here, at least from a business um, standpoint. You know, the GAO denied protests on two major contract awards that I believe were decided in 2022. Um, one was on the recompete on the joint light tactical vehicle, and the other was on the future long range attack aircraft. Uh, both were awarded by the Army. I think that's a sign maybe that, 
you know, at least the Army, you know, because we don't have the evidence from the Air Force and the Navy yet, but they were writing pretty good contracts that and and holding fair competitions that when the GO looked at that, you know, at the end of the day, they could say, okay, good. So that's a that to me would be a positive sign for industry too, because yes, you have a right to protest, but you know, if the contracts are well written and the and the the competition is held um fairly, uh that also, I think, should be a good sign uh, that, that things are changing. I'll move a little bit. You know, this is going to bleed into a little bit of a broader topic about China and kind of where they're sitting strategically. But, you know, there has been this, <clears throat> you know, Chinese economy is struggling. Um, unemployment, you know, focus on domestic issues. But I do think, um, you know, it probably wasn't a great year for China from a geostrategic standpoint, and I'll get to the business implications of this in a second, but you know, we did have a, a, an agreement with the Philippines on enhanced defense cooperation, um, which I think was pretty significant uh, in 2023. And then the business aspect that I think was important was maybe a little bit tighter coupling with India and a willingness to transfer defense technology to India um, I think it was around the time of uh, the the um, major air show this year, Paris Air Show, there was an announcement about an agreement on GE aircraft engine technology. And then later this year, uh, later 2023, there was an announcement. It really hasn't been fleshed out yet, but the U.S. was going to transfer striker vehicle technology to India. So, you know, kind of laying those rails down that would enhance cooperation between the United States and India, um, that that's something that could serve as a pretty interesting industrial counterweight to, to China um, as the, the years go by. So, you know, these are first steps. They still have to play through. Um, there have been some other, you know, broader issues with U.S.-India relations, but um, I think there are some steps there I think had pretty interesting potential business ramifications. And uh, any uh, any other stories as we uh, prepare to wrap? You know, I, I, the Middle East is always obviously topical. I, I have not believed that, uh, you know, the Israeli-Hamas war would be a major factor for the U.S. defense sector. But I think more broadly, you just have to ask yourself, you know, is there a sea change coming, um, you know, it's kaleidoscopic right now, right? You One side, well, the U.S. is going to be back in the Middle East again. I mean, we announced we're going to start doing, you know, naval patrols again in the, I shouldn't say again, but in the Red Sea to deal with a Houthi missile threat. Um, at the same, and you've had these, you know, multiple attacks by Iranian-backed uh, militias on, on U.S. positions in the Middle East. And as much as this you know, it's a tar patch. It's just hard to, to you know, see the U.S. really fully extricate itself from the Middle East and pivot decisively to Indo-Pacific. I, I think, you know, that's that's a lesson. I don't know what the business ramifications are going to be of that. I do think that there's potential risk that the longer this operation goes on in Gaza and the higher uh, the civilian casualties are, there could yet be more backlash <clears throat> against U.S. defense exports to the region. Um, not a lot of evidence that that's happening today, but, you know, just the tone and tenor of kind of uh, the reactions in Arab and Islamic states to what's taking place, you know, it may yet um, compel some of those countries to think differently about, uh, you know, 
at least doing some messaging to um to to change u.s defense imports um i think what's interesting is that despite uh the criticism that's being leveled uh at uh israel uh none of the countries that rekindled links with israel are breaking them right yeah, so it's true. it's interesting that all these countries recognize that there was a wrong done uh and you know i mean the difficulty of trying to eradicate a terror movement from one of the most congested areas in the world is is not going to be uh an an uneasy uh thing unfortunately no but i think Um, there's going to be something from the bottom up it's just something i'm i'm a little concerned about uh you know i think you and i were both at aspen security forum and there was a journalist who spoke about a trip to jordan where they were unable to get meetings because, you know, of the anti-American sentiment and, you know, an observation that Coke and Pepsi had been pulled off of store shelves. Uh, so, you know, where does this go? It's a change in 2023. It's something, you know, you have to think about, will it will it mean something new in 2024? Maybe you're right. You know, we're, we're, will the war will be over in, in Gaza, you know, things will be just fine. And, We'll we'll pick up where we left off, where we were, you know, in September 2023. I kind of doubt that. And and Byron, really uh, quickly, right? I mean, it's uh, you know certainly the end of the year. There's been uh, some management change uh, as well, although we've seen a little bit of that over the course of the entire year. Any of these that either strike a pattern in your mind, or do you see a trend, or do you see these as sort of individual events how do you interpret them well there's nothing that you kind of look at it vago and say there's a single consistent thread um you know some of these changes were orderly uh you know you have new management at lidos and saic um you know i think kind of a continuation of where those companies are going you know there have been some pretty abrupt changes recently at l3 harris uh you know cfo change and they had a filing by de shaw you know, suggesting that maybe there's going to be further shakeup coming in in their portfolio and really their behavior. Um, Mercury Systems, you know, pretty abrupt departure of their CEO um, and a replacement, you know, with someone on the board, um, you know, and that's really based on what had been really pretty rough operating uh, performance on their part. Right. Boeing, you know, I think, and, and it was, and and there was an acquisition there as well, right? Yeah, so, you yeah, know, there was there were a couple of ownership change, yeah, yeah, um, and then you know, RTX, um, you know, the the wording, you know, the press release, everything, well, that was a planned transition. You know, Greg Hayes will be around until May at the board meeting, you know, but I still kind of go back to the Reagan uh, Defense uh, Forum, National Defense Forum, and. You know, Hayes was listed on the on the itinerary, you know, that came out on Tuesday. And, you know, on Saturday, Chris Callio um, shows up and in his place. And so, you know, that was a maybe a precursor that something was happening. But you always wonder, you know, that that change in and of itself is kind of interesting um, as a precursor to the announcement that, in fact, Hayes was moving on and Callio. And, you know, the point that I make for that company it's a continuation of basically kind of people with finance accounting backgrounds um, running large defense contractors. I have nothing against people with finance and accounting backgrounds. That's kind of where I came from. But, you know, kind of the dearth of engineers, engineering talent, um, you know, is still maybe interesting. And if the Department of Defense thinks that there's going to be a major change in companies, you know, who are buying back stock, um, 
I don't think that's going to happen. And the last one, of course, was the announcement that um, Boeing had, uh, you know, basically promoted um, Stephanie Pope to be the chief operating officer. Um, that position didn't exist previously at the company, at least in its, you know, current, current iteration. Um, you know, but that also kind of raises a question because her background is also accounting um, an MBA, you know, she's had operating experience, but, you know, more broadly, what does it mean for where Boeing's going? Indeed, it was uh, fascinating. And I would point out it was Secretary Kendall, who from the Reagan forum, you know, held up Andrew and said, hey, I like the fact they're investing and I'd like to see other guys do that degree of investing instead of maybe buying back their stock. Uh, not, yeah. not that, that, tension, that tension is going to continue in 2024, but it kind of goes back to the earlier, you know, issues about, CCA and and um, and, and Andrew obviously isn't the only one out there. I think in a funny way, you know, Andrew maybe is is uh, there. There there are many many more companies out there. As much as Andrew gets a lot of attention and focus here, so um, the DoD potentially has a lot to pick from. And uh, Byron, really quick, uh, a look at the week ahead because that's uh, something that is foundational to this program. Well, there are. I mean, there's a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on December 20th on the future of arms control and deterrence. I think that's going to be particularly important um, based on some of the news reports that came out about the Sentinel program. Uh, Secretary Kendall had flagged the costs on that. Uh, CSIS is doing an event later today, Monday, on uh, space and airborne sensors for hypersonic missile defense. Um, and CSIS is also doing an event on the uh, basically military aid for uh, Ukraine on December 20th. Um, the 19th, Brookings is doing something on global actors in the war in Israel and Gaza. And also on the 19th, the government executive media group is doing an event on uh, basically cloud modernization in the DOD. Byron, thanks so very much uh, for joining us today, for joining us all year long, and look forward to having you on on a regular basis uh, every week, every Monday for the Week Ahead program uh, in 2024. Hope uh, you and yours uh, have wonderful holidays and a very happy, healthy, and prosperous uh, new year. The same to you and your family and to all your listeners, Fago. Thanks very much again, Byron. And thanks to all of you for joining us. And a special thanks to HII and all of our sponsors that make today and every day's programs possible. We'll see you again uh, tomorrow for tomorrow's year in review program on Russia's war on Ukraine. Carnegie's Eugene Rumor uh, and CNA's Sam Bendett will be our guests for that conversation. Until then, hope you guys have a terrific day and we'll see you again tomorrow.